here at ACO Radio, American Communications Online, or any affiliated stations or websites are not responsible for what guests, hosts, or call-ins may say. All programming is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Hello, world. This is TJ Morris, also known as Teresa J. Thurman Morris. We're building archives for the UFO Association. Jan has been sharing his research since he was in high school, and each person has a calling, and we've joined forces to assist in archiving and sharing oral reports while we share who, what, when, where, why, how for those who can classify themselves as UFO enthusiasts, UFO researchers, UFO historians, and basically the uh, ufologist is a term that is now used in, uh, I guess we could say, the UFO community. Uh, We also ascribe to the highest standards with performance with our ACO club, Ascension Center Organization, and ACE Folklife Association, both uh, we've had those with a federal ID number since 2003. And I am your host, Teresa J. Morris in Gulf Breeze, Florida. I hope everyone can hear me now. I'm trying a direct connect, and I am now going to call to save uh, Jan uh, actual money because he lives in an area of the country that uh, is not as well connected with uh I guess internet connections as much as we'd like to be. So let me see if I can get him by calling him direct to save him some money here. See if he answers. Hope we can hear him on this. Have I got the right number? 860-546-9135? Yes, you do. Hang Is on this Jan Aldrich? It, well, let me let me give it to you. Give it to him, rather. Excuse me. <laughs> Hello? Hi. Uh, Jan, we're live and on the air. I wasn't sure if this would work. Uh, is this your home phone number that you wanted me to... Uh, actually, yes, I got yes, you. Yes. So. Okay. Yes. Well... We're live and on the air, so just so you know, you're being recorded, and everyone live in Facebook and social media, and on iHeart and Blog Talk and Stitcher and all the other places we have you out there, Spreaker, iTunes can hear you. So uh, just so you know, uh, well, let's start uh, today, if you'd like, book one for uh, researching as a ufologist. Now, uh, do I have you in agreement with that? Uh, is this is this working for you? It doesn't cost you, right? Sure, sure, yeah. All right. As long as this doesn't cost you, and then maybe we can uh, hopefully get this uh, oral archive, and I can transcribe it into a book for us. All right. Where would you like to begin? I've I've told everybody today that you've been recording since high school, and we covered a little bit of that Tuesday. This is Thursday. October 17th, 2019. Uh-oh, Great. you fell off. Great. All right, well, so, let me try and call back. I don't know what cut him no, off. No, 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 We're here. Oh, okay. I can well, hear you fine. We're oh, okay. on both Great. phones. We're on both phones at the same time. 
I don't understand that, but okay. You were well, anyway, both, I can't. Uh, both numbers, because I was trying to call in, because uh, uh, I had okay. got a call for, at, uh, on the home phone. So. Oh, I see. So you hung. You just hung one up. I must have. That must right. have been what. Uh, all right. So you're. Uh, that's fine. So this. Uh, this shouldn't be costing you. Is that correct? So we have the that's right correct. one. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. Okay. Well, let's get started then, because I'm not using my phones. I'm trying a new direct connect uh, to save us both money <laughs> <laughs> on my cell phone usage as well. So this is good. As long as you can hear me, I can barely, yeah. I can barely hear you. So uh, I may make a little sound here. I'm going to put a headset on. Uh, uh, we're going to try this as the first for uh, strictly uh, archiving a book one with Jan, uh, being the fact that uh, we're going to get some uh, etymology and uh, words basically out of the way here. Uh, Jan, I've sort of described why we're doing this, and then hopefully I can transcribe this into a book someday because I understand that you have had throat cancer and you're getting up in years and you'd like to uh, get all this scanned and knowledge that you've found. But uh, let's start with uh, basically how you got into this back to high school. And let's start from there. Uh, give, let's get down a linear timeline. So what year you were, you were born and went to high school and went to a library. Let's start from there. Well, I was born in 44. <clears throat> so then I went, uh, um, I got, I saw ball lightning when I was, uh, in junior high during the Christmas vacation. It's a rather unusual, uh, thing to have a, uh, a, a thunder, we had thunder snow. We, we had a thunderstorm during a snowstorm. And uh, uh, I'd been outside shoveling snow, and I was going to make some cinnamon toast. And so uh, I went ahead and had it in the uh, in the uh, oven, and uh, I had the radio was on top of the stove, and that was one that was plugged in to the into the uh, the wall outlet, and uh, the chimney ran up through the wall right right close to the stove. So then we uh, we had a lightning strike that hit the house, Kauai, and the radio went crazy. So I opened up the oven and looked inside, and there's as big... A thing as big as a quarter. It was uh, a ball of light, and it was like a, the size of a quarter. It was not on the grate, but it was hovering above the grate, and it rolled. Uh, as I opened the oven, it rolled out, and. Uh, as it was rolling along, it wasn't touching the grate. It was above, once again, it was above the grate. It got to the end of the grate, came out a little bit more, and started to fall. And then it blew up like a um, like a firecracker, 
like a, um, oh, I can't, we, we used to set them off all the time. It was very loud. It was inside the house. So it was very loud. And uh, I uh, fell backwards uh, on my backside and uh, just astonished and uh, um, uh, completely uh, in awe of what was going on. And about that time, I noticed that the radio had stopped uh, with the static and everything and was back returned to normal. And so, like I said, when my father got home, I asked him what that was, and he said, I have no idea. And he said, uh, that's what the library's for. That's how you do research. So that was that was probably one of my first big research projects, was to find out about ball lightning, which, as I said before, in the Encyclopedia Britannica, it said <clears throat> scientists doubt that ball lightning exists. Of course, I'd seen it, and they had all kinds of explanations for it, too. Um, after, uh, people saw after images of a lightning strike, so that's what they saw that was on their eyeball. So that's what it was. Uh, but then uh, somebody had done some research, uh, found that uh, the lightning strike and the uh, man and his wife in bed, and the woman had seen the ball lightning, so she shook her her husband awake, and the lightning strike was over, so it didn't affect his eyes. So uh, he saw it. So that... Mm, that pretty well <clears throat> disproved uh, the idea that there was an afterimage of a lightning strike. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I'm sorry. No, that's fine. You can keep a glass of water or, or a uh, bottle yeah, of water. Yeah, I, I do have one here. It's uh, Good, me too. But, folks, that's just due to his scar tissue we understand from an after effect from cancer of the throat. Is that the way you understand it, Jan? Yes, yeah. The, the throat muscles are weak, so anything, uh, so they're real sensitive to everything. So I'm coughing or things like that. So uh, uh, that was How did kind you get of into a... Yeah, that leads you into, uh, we're going to get into ufology, but we've got to establish that right. that word even exists. But we're not so, there yet, because it didn't exist. It was still saucers back when you were a kid, and I was a kid in the 60s. So right now we're getting established that you started with a ball of lightning, which is sort of a great, you know, because we start a lot with poo fighters and balls of lightning. But that co coincides with the history that we, some of us, may be into but we're we're directing this as a book that is from the beginning how you got into all this and why we're coming together for the who what when where why how of ufology as ufo association reporters so jan so aldrich yes so that was why 
and I was very interested in ball lightning and still am very interested in ball lightning, and now scientists believe it exists. They can't explain it, but they believe now they do believe it exists. So uh, that was a... Uh, that was the my introduction to uh, strange things and um would you like to acknowledge that, uh, your father your father here with his credentials well he was fascinating uh, yeah he was a uh, an analytical and research chemist um and uh, at the time he worked for uh, chase brass and copper and uh, one of the things he was doing besides uh, checking on quality control was also uh, where they were working on new metals. And uh, they had several new metals that they were working on. Titanium was one. Um, they it's were in my neck on... now. <laughs> I've got huh? titanium in my neck. I wear titanium in my body. I'm a cyborg. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> Well, it, at the time, I remember him saying, well, it's called the Cinderella medal. <laughs> okay, because it was, it was, Thank it you. was light, but, but very strong. And so, uh, that was the nickname for titanium. And they were just finding out how to use it on, uh, many applications, uh, and a lot of aviation applications. Do you um, know what the PSI is by any chance? Uh, that's not your. That was your father's uh, research, not your own. But just if we can look it up on Google, can't we? <laughs> Titanium pounds per square inch. <laughs> the pressure oh, it's, uh, in my neck. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, and it was just one. Uh, the other, uh, another one was uh, rhenium. They were doing some things with uh, something called gallium, which um, uh, melts about body temperature. So, uh, you know, some of these uh, um, people that uh, can bend spoons, um, they uh, they're made at uh, there. Some of them have gallium in them. And so then when you uh, when you hold it in your hand, it starts to melt. So then you can show people, hey, it's bending, it's bending. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Well, commercially, titanium has 99.2% pure grade of titanium, has ultimate tensile strength of about 434 MPa or 63,000 PSI equal to that of common low-grade steel alloys, but less dense. So titanium is 60% denser than aluminum, my goodness, but more than twice as strong as the most common used 6061T6 aluminum alloy. But the reason this is important to me, uh, I'm just putting in a footnote for the book, is the fact that your father was in the things that we discussed a lot in ufology uh, later on, uh, what people call the nuts and bolts of the, uh, if there are saucers and UFOs, and we believe there are, but the alien uh, artifacts and alien alloys and a mixture thereof, including with uh, Bob Lazar in Area 51. So I just find that curious that we're starting this with you 
and the time frame and that your father was in the business. That's just a little side note. But right. I think that's so interesting that uh, but it may have nothing to do with you, but he did send you to the library. So that's right. why I wanted to talk a little bit about him and how it cured, that may not be not something. It may, may be nothing, depending on if you believe uh, aliens are among us or aliens are us or alien civilizations exist. They may uh, welcome certain people in their DNA, and we may prove that later on. Who knows, historically? You may have been chosen or born into this based on your father's Well, I think, I think my father, he wanted me, he wanted to train me into using uh reference books and uh, looking things up and finding things out for myself. Was he a researcher? Instead of asking him all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, did yeah, he I, like think, I think he was trying to he was trying to train me up uh to uh to go find out things for myself. Which of course he was a scientist and that's what you'd expect him to do. Um So you recognize you can call your father a scientist. I've been called a scientist, but I didn't recognize that in myself. But uh, you did he have a degree in anything? Or yeah, yeah, he had a he had a, he had a a BS in chemistry, so he was he was a degree chemist. Okay. Um, he had uh, he had a number of patents that he had uh, done for the company. And one of them was how to purify rhenium, which was a very expensive uh, metal at the time, about $25,000 an ounce. I've never so heard he of rhenium. He had found, he had found an unconventional way to purify it. He and uh, a chemical engineer, they had, uh, they had done something completely, uh, theoretically, it, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. Are you so, saying radium for chrome or radium? R-A-D or R-E-M? Rhenium, R-H-E-N-I-U-M. Not even close, okay. R-H-E-N-I-U-M. Right. Okay. Well, I'm already learning from you, Jan, so thank you for that. Rhenium. So, uh, yeah, okay. in fact, he, he let me, <clears throat> he let me, uh, he had samples of what we just talked about. I mean, you know, several. I mean, we had bismuth. Um, he had samples of these are high purity things: tin, okay, <clears throat> uh, uh, gallium, the one that melts at uh, uh, body heat temperature, and um, and he gave me a, a, a sample of rhenium that must have weighed more than. Uh, an ounce. It was like a big button, it just about holding your hand in the palm of your hand. And I took those in and showed them to my classmates. <clears throat> that was that was a big hit. So. Yeah, and I would I, I would ask him about what he was doing, and he you know he would he would tell me he told me that the purification of rhenium was uh, supposedly theoretically impossible, but the way they had done it, um, the uh, it was done by ion exchange, and the rhenium 
the the rhenium was uh, uh, as a uh, as a chemical called perinic acid, and as uh, and they used the ion exchange, and the uh, perinic acid would uh, destroy the uh, ion exchange column as as it was as it was working, but they could get enough purified rhenium out of the, out of a, a pass, and then the column would be poisoned, and they had to they had to recharge it, and that's that's how they did it. Uh, it was indeed uh, it did indeed not work, but it worked just long enough to uh, to uh, make the make a small amount of rhenium each time they were able to pass it through uh, a, a, a co- the column so and since it was so expensive it was uh, it was economic to do that so this is a kind of a unusual thing that he had uh, he had done this is atomic number 75 it's mined in Miami down here in Florida in Arizona and uh, elsewhere in Arizona and Utah. So right. uh, that's element seven, atomic number 75. But apparently uh, we're going to use the in ufology. So this is very interesting. So we'll have a chemistry division and a periodic table of elements <laughs> in our book. Because <laughs> we get on to the element 116, 17, 18 later on. Los Alamos National Laboratories was established in 1943, oddly enough, and they carry that chemistry division. So how about that? So we put a plug in for Los Alamos, where my uncles worked. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> okay, so your father. Oh so, yeah, was uh, at the time, uh, Chase Brass and Copper or Kennecott, which is the parent company, uh, either owned all the places that uh, were known to have rhenium at the time, all the mining. Or they, uh, through affiliates, they controlled it. So, as my father always says, they were in the catbird seat there. However, and they were on the ground floor of a lot of uh, new new, uh, metals. And he says, but they they were not very, uh, they weren't taking advantage of their, um, the the uh, great advantage they had as far as being able to be the only ones that were were doing some of this. Uh, they had the materials, and eventually uh, other people were able to get them. So, can you explain what catbird means to the listening audience and me, please? I've never heard the term. I guess I'm just showing my ignorance, folks, but it's okay. Oh, okay. that's, that's the best seat. That's the be, that's the best. That you're in the best position at the time. That's a folk uh, expression. It, it says, uh, "Catbird seat," an American English idiomatic phrase used to describe an enviable enviable position, often in terms of having the upper hand, a greater advantage in any type of dealing among parties. That's per Wikipedia, so I did cite my source, but yeah. I'd never heard it before. So thank you for that. There's two words you've added to my 
vocabulary today for this book. So there you go. So this book may be worth something by the time we're through. <laughs> All right. So. Yeah. Um, Moving right along. However, at the time, it was it, – to him, it was exciting, and I know to me it was exciting too that he was working on these things and was uh, it was really interesting. But I was also excited about what I had seen, so I went down to the library. Now, one of the books I found down there was uh, um, Captain Edward Rupelt, who had been in charge of Project Blue Book from approximately uh, 1951 to 19. To middle of '53, and he had written a report on unidentified flying objects, and this was similar to ball lightning. Nobody believed in it; they thought they had explained it. Um, so that was also interesting. And for a while, I uh, Rupel. Uh, kind of said some bad things about Major Donald E. Keogh in his book. He took a couple of swipes at him. So uh, I was reluctant to read anything by Keogh, but uh, uh, in 1960 I read Keogh's book, which is uh, Flying Saucer's Top Secret, which was about the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And so I joined... Uh, still in high school, I joined NICAP. I think it was $5 a year at the time. Would you explain what that means, <clears throat> the acronym, abbreviation? The National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. Thank you. So, so he, uh, that was his organization, and I, like I said, I joined them. Uh and they had, uh, as they said, it was a fact-finding organization <clears throat> working in the public interest. Now, was that 1960, or can you give us? Uh, I, I read the book in 1960, and shortly afterwards, I found the address, and I, I uh, asked, uh, I asked for information. I got the information back, and I joined them right away. Thank you. Any year would be helpful for the book. Thank you. 1960. So yep. this will be the chapter one, book one. <laughs> so no, 19- I'd already read Rupel. You know, I'd already seen that, and his his style was um, was sort of uh, very breezy, and. Uh, um, and of course, he had he had he had uh, like uh, internal conversations in there, like you would expect to see in uh, uh, Smiling Jack, the the uh, the Air Force pilot hero of uh, a uh, Sunday or no, it was a daily comic book or comic uh, in the in the newspaper comics. Uh, is Terry Terry Canyon and uh, there was a there was another column is Smiling Jack so um, but the uh, some of the conversations in there were were like Smiling Jack so that was it was it was uh, an interesting read you got to you got to hear the Air Force slang and everything in there so it was it was an interesting thing. 
Uh, I read the book, but I'm sure it didn't affect me like it did you. I didn't read it till later on when uh, Stanton Friedman suggested it. So uh, when, I, when I, I read that book, I said so many times they were close. They, they they were constantly trying to intercept these things, and they would get so close, and something would happen, and then they 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 were. You know, it was it, it was like the you know the uh, things just happened so that um, like the UFO got away or any uh, anything like that. There was a, there were a lot of cases like that. So it was it was really uh, it was like an adventure, and that's what he that's that's what uh, what his editor told him to write. Let's uh, say that Edward James Rupelt served as project chief of Air Force investigations into unidentified flying objects from November 1951, and I I was just born December 51, to September 1953. So uh, this is from NICAP.org, papers, forward slash rupelt underscore forgotten dot PDF. So the forgotten correspondence of Edward J. Rupelt. So uh, I'm just throwing that in here uh, at this part of the book. So we'll know to put this as a footnote, Edward James Rupelt. So that now we know. Now, that's not all he was, but he continues to provide ufology at an early date. So I don't know if he is. We'll decide later on how to inspire this word. Okay, uh, so Rupelt now... uh, uh, I guess towards the end of his uh, career, or or his, uh, he was he was called uh, to active duty because of the Korean War, and he and a number of other officers, reserve officers, were at uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and they were. They they made up Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book was made up almost exclusively of reserve officers who were only going to be there for the duration of the war. I think Rupelt thought that if he uh, if he made himself uh, important to the project, if he was if he was the the head, uh, that they might keep him on after the war was over. But that didn't happen. And that was as I was a reservist, uh, Sierra Mar- Mariner program, second time after four by ten, was uh, USNR, and they would put dash R, is uh, ready reserves. Is that what the, the people running Bluebird were reserves? And yeah, they were all reserve officers. Uh, Rupel had been a uh, an enlisted man in World War Two. Uh, he 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 got a degree in. Uh, Aeronautics engineering, and they made him a uh, a first lieutenant when he uh, uh, when he came in to his reserve uh, uh, assignment. So he was, uh, uh, and what he uh, like I said, he'd been a. a, a, a an enlisted man. He seemed to get along better with the enlisted people than the than the officers. 
especially the career officers. He he didn't much like the career officers. He thought they were too. They they wouldn't take enough risks, and they were worried about their careers, so they wouldn't stick their neck, necks out at all. So uh, he yeah he he made comments about those the the, the uh, career officers in in letters to some of his friends. One of his friends was uh, was a uh, clerk that worked at Blue Book, uh, Max Futch, F U T C H, and uh, he, he talked to Ma- Max like he was a friend. So um, now this is in this paper I cited, fifty one to three, referred to F U T C H as his sergeant, but a trusted friend. Yes, and he was. And here's what happened. Um, Ruppelt, when he was getting close to uh, leaving the service, he thought, hey, maybe this uh, whole UFO thing would be something good to write about. So he started collecting material for his book, and then for a book he planned, or an article, actually he started off with an article, and uh, after he left, Max would send him material. He'd ask him for material, and Max would send it to him. So actually, he was slipping him uh, stuff and and doing research for him. Uh, And we have Ruppelt's papers. Uh, They're quite an accumulation. a number of boxes of uh, of things that uh, he accumulated, his notes on uh, what he did in the service, um, um, his book. There's several chapters that he uh, wrote, several versions of the of the uh, of the chapters. So. We just see one of them, and of course he uh, he edited down his book, so there's uh, lots more information that was just in his uh, draft that is just crossed out. So there's a uh, there's a, a a large amount of <clears throat> of information that uh, that's not in the book that he. He came across while he was uh, um, chief of Project Blue Book. Well, let me just mention here on leap years, uh, 2020, I would like to have this book finished by leap year because I came in in this reserve, uh, I guess you could say, like the men that worked on Blue Book, 429.85. Now, does that date mean anything to you? Because... I was brought in on a project for a leap year contract in the intelligence community between the Navy and the Central Intelligence Agency, the United States Navy. Does that mean anything to you, 42985, 42993, or uh, 2020 in the UFO no, business? None, none of that. Uh, nothing rings a bell right now. All right. Just needed to know because I'd like to have this. At least uh, the best we can do for one book 
with as much information that you feel should be in it up until 2020. So I'll just put that out there by four. I wondered if uh, April 29th, I'll have to look, but that was my contract. And they had me sign a new one in 1994 at Fort Hood. That was with the United States, but I don't know. The U.S. Navy came, but I had to take uh, another. uh, You know how you go through military enlistment program, MEPS? Right. Fort Hood, uh, they had me take another. Is it called the ASVAB? Uh, Oh, yeah, there is an ASVAB. All right. Because at first I had 89. I scored the highest in Houston, but when I came back from Africa, so I got to go in, you know, of course I was a, a investigator out of country, so I was already trained in for subrogation. But uh, I was told I had been in FPO New York in the 80s, and uh, then I know I'd been over at Balboa Hospital in the 70s. So uh, by the time I came back in, I'm starting to think now, because working with you, I'm getting questions answered because uh, of meeting Dr. J. Allen Hynek and KUFOs. But uh, I believe this is supposed to happen, and uh, I don't know why that came to me, but apparently 429, we'll have to see if uh, 2020 is a leap year, and uh, maybe we'll have enough information. Anyway, we, every book has to have a cutoff. That will give us a roughly six months, right? It's 1017, and uh, we'll cut it off. At least that's what I'd like to do. That's okay with you. So uh, we're talking about Jan Aldrich and his life and how he came across the name Edward J. Ruppelt based on his father having a very interesting scientific background in the metallurgies and uh, him seeing a ball of lightning and his father sending him to the library. And he came across a very interesting book. And what was the name of that book again that changes or gets you all involved? I would think we give Edwards the, uh, every re, re, the report on unidentified flying objects. The report on unidentified flying objects. Right. All right. And do you know the year or any information to put it in was, this? Uh, he, uh, it was published in 1956. And you read it in '60 and joined NICAP. In no, no, 60. no. I read I read that before. I read that about uh, '58, '59. I read Keo's book in 1960. All right. Well, my guess. Right, well, back and, and make sure we have a good unidentified flying object uh, is the popular term for an aerial phenomenon. That cannot be immediately identified. So we can agree that UFO is for that. But back then, uh, so he did use that term. Did he get? Uh, well, he claims he coined it. <clears throat> he claims he coined it, but that's not really true. Can you give us? It, it's been historical. used in. A, it's been used in official documents all the way back to 1947. So, uh, but he claim his claim may be that. Yeah, he was made the one that made it official. That was the official name. He made it official as as that's before they referred to him as flying discs. Yeah, because so, we had the uh, Rupel could say, uh, I made this the official term for uh, 
flying saucers or flying discs? I remember extensive uh, conversations with Doc, uh, I always want to call him doctor, but he wasn't. Uh, and he reminded me of that. But Stanton T. Friedman, uh, in our many uh, conversations as uh, historians or researchers, uh, discussing Majestic 12 and then also the Roswell UFO incident, because we were both investigators or researchers on that uh, particular case, is the fact that he said flying saucers. And uh, I guess we, we're we now going to establish, between your mind and mine, where, who we're going to give credit to in this book, Establishing UFO Reporters or UFO Association. So the uh, Forgotten Correspondence of Edward J. Rupel, the story behind a report on unidentified flying objects. Now, that's by Michael Hall and Wendy Connors. Now, I don't know if you put credence in any of their story. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I helped them write that book. Oh, really? That's I helped book. them write that book. And I gave wow. them advice and, and, and other things. And uh, Michael Hall is a competent uh, historian. He was uh, head of a uh, uh, professional historic group in Indiana, and now he is in he is uh, at the uh, at the National Atomic Testing Center in Nevada, and he's in charge of the uh, he's in charge of the uh, history group there. So this should be uh, a good He's a thing, professional but... historian. He knows what he's doing. He uh, he and Wendy uh, uh, interviewed people, and uh, uh, he knows how to research history, and he's got a degree in history. He's uh, uh, very competent. Well, their name is going to come into our book one oral reports, for UFO Association as UFO Reporters under the name uh, The Forgotten Correspondence of Edward J. Rupelt, the story behind Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. And that yeah, is but he, he, wrote, he wrote a book uh, uh, entitled, a, a popular book that I think you can still get on Amazon. It's, it's, it's out of print, but I think there's, you, people still sell copies. It's called uh, Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, um, Summer of the Saucers, 1952, Michael David Hall and Wendy Ann Connors. Did you just have that uh, at hand, or is that on your I'm computer? looking at the cover right now. Oh, and it, shows, it, show, it shows Ruppelt. Standing in front of a B-29 bomber, uh, and it's a picture from World War II. May I ask what is that picture? That uh, the only picture I have of you to use. Oh, this for, is not not me. It's Rupel. I'm asking about you though. What is yeah. that piece of equipment behind you? Is is for? Uh, oh, that's an F-86. That's an F-86 uh, fighter jet. And the reason we use that one, that's at the uh, uh, Air Museum at uh, in Hartford, 
at the Bradley Airport. And the reason I'm sitting there is because we are discussing the incident in 1952, in the summer of 52, when uh, uh, an F-86 pilot was chasing a UFO and he fired on it. It was playing cat and mouse with him, and he finally decided that uh, it was a threat to him, so he opened fire on it. And that's why we're that's why I'm sitting in front of that because that's the that's the aircraft he was flying when he shot at it, and I'm being interviewed by the Smithsonian television people concerning that incident. And uh, so you are I, I'm surprised I surprised them because I knew more. They thought they had all the information possible on that incident, and uh, I had interviewed the intelligence officer who uh, wrote the intelligence report, and I had, uh, we had the the notes from the uh, Robertson panel by Dr. Thornton Page, and he talks about the uh, incident in there, so I started, they, they they wanted me to more or less just read back Ruppelt's version of the, uh, of the incident back to him. And I started telling them I knew more than that. And I started describing it to them. And they said, where'd you get this information? And I told them, I said, you know, Ruppelt isn't the only source here. What was his name? Did you get the airman's name? Was he an Air Force? He was in the um, Air Force. It's a possibility to get his name. He was. Uh, he was. Um, they uh, rode him out of the Air Force because he saw or did a chase. No, because he fired on it, and they thought he was uh, hot dogging it. He. They thought that uh, uh, he was acting irresponsible, so they. Uh, they put him out of the Air Force. He lost his uh, officer rating and his pilot rating. <clears throat> However, he had been a uh, he, he he had been in a uh, prior enlisted, so he he came back in and made um, I think it was master sergeant. But uh, yeah, he lost his uh, ratings. The uh, the people that were in charge of uh, um, uh, Kirkland Air Force Base at the time were were out to get him. Uh, Ruppelt describes that in the book. They said, you know, he says that uh, uh, there were there was a faction at, at Kirkland Air Force Base that that wanted this, that tried to get this guy. I I don't think Ruppelt realized uh, exactly what happened to this uh, pilot. He. Uh, uh, they put him in front of a board of officers. He, like I said, he lost his pilot rating, and he uh, uh, he, he was he lost his officer rating. There was, was two pilots. One was on top, and one was on bottom. Is that the story? Uh, two two yeah, pilots. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, and yeah. and he uh, the. Uh, he would catch up with the thing and it would go ahead. And 
uh, he would catch up with this thing, and he, uh, he, he, you know, the orders are, if you feel you're uh, threatened, you, you can open fire. You can defend yourself. You always have the right of self-defense. So he felt that he was, uh, the, uh, the thing was playing with him, and he, he felt he was in danger, so he fired on it. Now, we are we talking about uh Air Force pilot that saw this? Yeah, it was 1952 in, uh, uh, in the summer of 52 at Kirkland Air Force Base. Now, uh, let's see. Uh, F-86 pilot is all that we refer to. So I wonder why they never would list his name. I well, mean, no, Rupert wanted to keep everything secret. He wasn't even supposed to see that report. If you go back to a uh, report on unidentified flying objects and read, and it's it's almost in the first chapter, it's in one of the early chapters in there, about the firing on the UFO, um, they uh, they wouldn't even send that to Wright-Patterson. They, they, they destroyed the report. I've heard a lot of stuff being destroyed by the ATIC. So, uh, so they were they just uh, no, it never got to ATIC. It was oh, it destroyed didn't. by Kirkland. The, okay. uh, so I was never supposed to see that report, but uh one of the intelligence officers at uh, Kirkland showed him the report. He said, "Please don't get me involved here." But then Rupel did. Because he talked about it at the Robertson panel, and then he put it in his book. Now, was that when the first UFO reports, uh, June twenty fourth, nineteen forty seven, with the Air Force? No, no, it's nineteen fifty two. Nineteen fifty two at Kirkland Air Force Base. It's nothing to do with forty seven. Well, I'm just saying that 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 was the reason a lot of people. Uh, already knew they called them the UFO nuts, right? And that was in the book or something about flying saucers, and they didn't want to. They called them flying saucer nuts, forty-nine to fifty, and they didn't want people to call them that. About fifty-two, they had already established a false uh, balloons and all that. Uh, they didn't want people to know, and they were hiding all this information. So. This has got this has got nothing to do with that. This has got the reason for this is the the uh, officers, the high-ranking officers at Kirkland Air Force Base, did not want this to get out because they thought it embarrassed them. Hmm. And they they never sent. It was their duty to send this report. To ATIC, and they shrugged off their duty by doing this. Okay, so fortunately, another commander took over at Kirkland, and he was more open-minded. But this was uh, this was not had nothing to do with a, a, a cover-up of UFOs. It was a cover-up of of what happened at Kirkland. 
commander yeah. did not felt like he would be embarrassed if this got to ATIC. So he he ordered the report destroyed. So we're going to just say the summer of 1952, an Air Force F-86 jet interceptor shot at a flying saucer. Now that's at NICAP.org. So uh, the chapter one, it says Project Blue Book and the UFO story apparently is a NICAP.org uh, uh, that I can see. I just pulled it up. It says uh, NICAP homepage, table of contents. In Chapter 2, The Era of Confusion begins page 15. <laughs> so sometimes when something comes up, I don't know what it's the Chapter 1 of. It's a great background. It says Project Blue Book and the UFO Story. Uh, and it says uh, NICAP.org up here in the uh, white bar. <laughs> well, so, as we uh, said the last time, uh, NICAP.org keeps the name alive. Okay. And it's run by a, a former NICAP member, and it's with permission of uh, um, hmm, the, uh, the people work. that own the name. They, they, uh, NICAP is uh, is a uh, registered trademark, so uh, uh, Francis Ridge has the permission to keep the name going. And uh, many of the cases that he talks about are from NICAP files. Well, that's good. And apparently we can still reach that. So uh, if you put in the report on unidentified flying objects, RUPELT, this is what I put in, and uh, Google. And I, I have to admit I use Google, and I don't know what life was like on my Android cell phone until Google. But I'm just learning to pull all this together makes it a lot easier, folks. The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, book by Edward J. Rupelt. And now you brought up that uh, this is a good story for you because Edward J. Rupelt and you helped Michael Hall and Wendy Connors at the NICAP.org papers, Rupelt underscore forgotten.pdf would be very good to read. And so yeah, that's, a, that's an article they wrote, but their the their book is Captain Edward J. Rupelt, Summer of the Saucers, 1952. All right. So they that's wrote a true. they wrote that article, but they also wrote a book. And uh, yeah, I can't seem to locate that right now. So yeah, that that is not on the NICAP site. That's a that's a different one. They wrote right. two books. They wrote one about uh, Alfred Loading and uh, and the UFO wave of 1947 because Loading was the guy that uh, initiated Project Sign at uh, at uh, Wright Field. He Here's was the initiator book. of Project Sign. He was a he was an engineer at the right field, and he had had his own sighting in 1937, and uh, that had affected him quite a bit, and he had actually written to his congressman reporting it. So now we're back, we're, we're, we're back, giving a back story back to 1937 that I didn't know about. I'm looking at the UFO evidence by Richard H. Hall. 
so we can. There's a lot of books, folks. Richard when, H. Hall. When Hall wrote the UFO evidence, he had no idea who loading was. This is In this is this is information, really that uh, that uh, Michael Hall and uh, Wendy Connors uh, found on their own. I mean, wow. They. Uh, they dug. Uh, they 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 talked to the loading family. They talked to his co- colleagues. They talked to the people that worked with him. They talked to the unofficial historian out there at uh, ATIC. So uh, um, they did. They did quite a uh, research project on this, and then Captain Rupel. Now, uh, would you say they are UFO researchers, authors, reporters, all of the above? Because all of the above. All right. So, twenty years of mental press and private channels. So uh, they also used governmental uh, press and private channels. So they claim that their abstract is serious evidence, clarified and analyzed. So the data are reported. Yeah, they use the. they used a lot of uh, government documents. The loadings mentioned in there, and of course, Rupel's mentioned many, many times. All right. It says in an article for Yale Scientific Magazine, April '63, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, chief scientific consultant to the Air Force on UFOs, blah blah blah. That says dot dot dot. There are more reports per year now than there were in the early years of the Flying Saucer era UFO reports. So this, uh, we'll just have to list these books, I guess, in the uh, book we're writing because there's so much data out there already. And uh, and right now in this time, there's uh, people flooding uh, with data, but we still can't get enough that isn't recorded. So this was Richard Richard H. Hall, editor and then they got Washington, D.C., May 1964, published by National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP, 1536 Connecticut Avenue, Northwest, Washington, 36, D.C. So that's UFO, flying objects. So they did publish this book, but, and it has Richard H. Hall, editor for NICAP, apparently. So we'll yeah, have he to was the uh, he was the assistant director by that time. Okay, and you were in NICAP from the t- 1960 forward. So where uh, do we want to go back to? Because we jumped ahead into 19 the summer of 1952 with that F86 question. I asked about your pet your photo, so we can right. have the Rupelt photo and the J uh, Jan Aldrich photo. So. Right. That's clear. So you want to go back to uh, there's two men and two books that shaped your life in the beginning, and apparently this is one of the two, right? Were there any more books? And of course, I didn't. I'm glad you said you helped Hall and Connors. I just happened to pull that up when you mentioned something. So right. <coughs> back on the story. I I helped them on both their books. They did a book on. Uh, Alfred J. Loading, and they did a book on Rupel. I helped them with both books. Well, let's establish who you are then, based on the fact that today is we're getting down who the oral author is of this book uh, for the UFO Association, which will incorporate uh, 
historical evidence that, of course, UFOs, CSI, NICAP, uh, <coughs> MUFON, all of those existed for a reason of people like you and me when they were here and they were interested. So let's establish who Jan Aldrich is. So back to your father, high school, reading books in the library. And of course, your picture in front of an F-86 is what we were just talking about. So we'll use that picture in this book. Well, I'm going to try to get a new headshot of you more updated, but uh, <laughs> we've got at least two books here and several authors, including Richard Hall. But let's go back. You've, you're there and we've, Apparently, you learned about NICAP and went in. Uh, I really want to establish the crossover between the balls of lightning and your interest in either however you want to describe it, flying saucers or UFOs. But I'd like to establish when you feel like UFOs in your life. Were you? Did you begin reading about flying saucers? Because so many people... Uh, with Stan, he was really big on flying saucers, and I think someone wrote a book, Flying Saucers Are Real. But he would say flying saucers for so long. I found that interesting working with him. But do you talk UFOs first, not flying saucers? Yeah, yeah, I've have... always said UFOs. Oh, okay. I mean, that, that, that was that was Ruppelt's attempt to make it more um, respectable. All right, well, who would you say coined the first? Was the government using UFO first? Do, is it in Google? Yeah, Rupert was in 52. I mean, it was used before then, but he, he made it official. I think you could say he he he, he said, uh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm responsible for coining the word. Well, I don't think he's responsible because it's back to 1947. It's used in, in July 3rd, 1947. Is, uh, but I think he he was the one that was really had it ma- made it official. It's going to be the official name of these things, not flying saucers anymore or flying discs. The military preferred flying discs. All right, I'm looking at a photo in Wikipedia called Photograph of a Purported UFO in Passaic, New Jersey. I I don't know how you say P-A-S-S-A-I-C. Yeah, yeah, that's right. How do you say it? Passaic or Passaic? Passaic. You had it right the first time. All right. Taken on July 31st, 1952. And I don't know why I got it right the first time, but maybe, but I've got 20 years back in the South, so... But one time I sounded more educated. Anyway, let's see. All right, so terminology, the term UFO or UFOB was coined in 1953. Now, I'm not saying I agree, folks. This could be a disambiguation, according to uh, Wikipedia. But it says it was coined. I'm reading a source, wikipedia.org. The terminology, okay, is that the term was coined in 1953 by the United States Air Force, USAF, to serve as a catch-all. For all such reports, in its initial definition, the USAF stated that a UFOB was any airborne object which, by performance, aerodynamic characteristics, or unusual features, does not conform to any present known aircraft or missile type, comma, or which cannot be positively identified as a 
familiar object, period. So, yeah, that, uh, that, that citation is wrong. Okay. It's 1952, and it's with Ruppelt. And uh, <clears throat> we'll need you to correct the, that. The, the, yeah, it's it's really easy to check that, and um, we'll uh, need to have you the the, the 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 reference would be uh, Air Force letter uh, uh, um. It says the phrase "flying saucer" gained widespread attention in the summer of '47, but they do mention Rupelt in here as an acronym. UFO was coined by Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, who headed Project Blue Book. Yeah, Ruppelt did coin the acronym. That that you can say. But he also okay. made you unidentified flying objects. Or let's put it this way. The Air Force made it in 52, made that the official. Now, I'm uh, just quoting here. With, uh, okay. with uh, um, I mean, we're, we're getting really in the weeds here. About you know about, you know inside baseball type type of thing here. Um, well, that's okay. It's our book. We can say whatever we want. So, <laughs> Whether people want to say finding a fact, we're quoting. I'm quoting Wikipedia. I, in fact, I think you can even find it. For, uh, 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 UFOs. Uh, back further, when you talk about Janet one forty six. Uh, it says uh, unidentified flying objects. So, um, as Kenneth Arnold gained widespread use of a uh, flying saucer, June 24th, a civilian pilot named Kenneth Arnold reported seeing nine objects flying in formation near Mount Rainier. Yeah, and that's that's misunderstood also. Wow. So a lot of this stuff. Well, this is why we're here. Uh, Kenneth Arnold talked about. Uh, uh, flying saucer skimming or saucer skimming uh, and he wasn't talking about his mother's talking about going outside and throwing his mother's uh, uh, tea saucers out in the lake he was he was talking about uh, skeet targets for skeet shooting oh and the name had already been Established skeet targets were called flying saucers. Really? All the way back, all the way back, long before that in World War Two. So, ah, uh, people uh, people think they, you know, th- this is what comes of um, incomplete research. Yes. How far back can you go? That's why we're. Uh, I'm very excited to be working with you, Jan, because of uh, getting the record straight, so to speak. Whether people want to believe this is going to be getting the record straight or not, it's up to them. But they can go do their own <laughs> on this first book here. I'm finding it very fascinating the way we're doing it. So, uh, you know, we'll yeah, keep and, going. Uh, the, the 53 reference is, is wrong because... Air Force Letter 200-5 talks about UFOs in there. So, yeah, uh, well, it talks about unidentified flying objects. So, so the studies of UAP come along much later. Yeah, uh, UAP is just a you know, APRO had their own word for, uh, which they also borrowed from the Air Force, and then it was called. Uh, uh, 
unidentified aerial objects. So UAO. Oh, in here too. So. That was that was uh, Lorenzen's favorite thing. Oh, well, the Air Force had used that before. Oh, okay. Now we'll have to talk about the Lorenzen. So, APRO, and let's talk about the the couple that were clip clip. Uh, I wonder how they got into it. So we'll talk about Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, Jim and Carl. Let me pull that up. Now, uh, it flips me always to Wikipedia. Now, I don't know why that is, but my Yeah, well, that's, you know, a lot of people have written for Wikipedia, but in some cases, they're not the most... Um, Thorough. Yeah, educated on the uh, subject. Um, well, I'm to use it in a lot of the schools, too, because children will be referred to Wikipedia, so we'll have to find out through educators if that's still true. Well, let's establish at this point the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, was a UFO research group started in January 1952 by Jim and Carl Lorenzen of Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. However, the group was based in Tucson, Arizona after 1960. APRO state branches remained active until 1988. Now, would you like to uh, put in your two cents on all of this? I just read this. I'm citing Wikipedia, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. Right, right. It, it, it did start in 52. Uh, uh, Coral was... Uh, Female. She, yeah, she uh, she had sightings before World War Two, And uh, then she started reading about these material in the papers... And uh, many of the things she uh, people may have seen in in Wisconsin may have been uh, um, <clears throat> these giant research balloons that were uh, uh, being used in that area. Uh, some of them were, but she was also collecting regular UFO reports. Um, so, uh, and she was, uh, uh, she had her own organization, and uh, she learned by doing, because she was one of the earliest UFO organizations there was. So, she had her own questionnaire, and, and things like that, and go out and talk to people, and well, I remember in 2008, I was writing uh, for UFO Digest in Canada for James, uh, wait, what was his name? Dirk Vanderplug, and he worked for Toronto newspapers. But somehow, the officer that apparently was in charge of me internationally was named Kevin Smith, and he followed me in whatever business, as an intelligence officer, recruited back in Louisiana, and he was a sheriff there in the State Farm, and this was recorded on his own radio show. But Kevin Smith died not too long after he investigated or had me on his radio show of a heart attack. So I was starting to get dirt died, 
he died. I, so uh, I was going to a producer, and he died over in, in California, interested in our Ascension Age. Uh, uh, Paul Rosenberg died. So a lot of people doing this work have died around me, Jan, and it's good just to But we are getting older. But they were dying rather young, you know, their 50s and early well, 60s. Rupel died really young. 45 or so? Let's establish that. We've got APR up here, but we can go backwards. So uh, let me look him up again. So Rupel, right? Edward Rupel. And uh, we'll, we'll get his. How old was he? Do you know? I think he was in his 40s. Okay. I just had this up and now I can't find it. Unidentified flying objects. Uh, let me see. Uh, Edward J. Rupelt. Okay, there's his name. As an acronym, coined by Captain Edward J. Rupelt, headed Project Blue Book. Then the USAF. What's Grant Cameron want? Uh, anyway, I guess Grant's listening to us. Obviously, they term flying saucer as misleading. Kenneth Arnold. Well, where is it was in his 40s. Okay, I'll just have to go pull up uh, Edward J. Rupelt as a separate outside of, because uh, it's under UFO. But uh, Edward, it was J, wasn't it? Edward J. Rupelt. Uh, uh, I'll put years. Edward J. Rupelt. And see what it says. Here it is. Immediately, it was, you had to pull his name up under Wikipedia. July 17th. 1923 and dash September 15th 1960 so we're talking about the dash in between (laughs) that's what we say about life folks we're just the dash so between his birthday July 17th 1923 dash September 15th 1960 was a United States Air Force officer probably best known for his involvement in Project Blue Book a former government study of unidentified flying objects. Now let's classify year dates. Year and he's got his years of service, World War II to middle fifties, and we know he was involved fifty one to fifty three. But he died at age thirty seven and he was in the United States Air Force. He also right. had well, that's really early. That's uh thirty um, seven? What happened to him? Well, we a, talked to one uh, one Blue Book officer, uh, 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 Rothstein, Lieutenant Rothstein, and he said uh, he was not surprised that Rupelt died young. He said he was a type A personality. He was a, um, uh, he, he was always on the go and Maybe just a little too enthusiastic about everything. It says parents Edward Alfred Rupelt, 1891 to 1948. He only had one sibling, one brother, James Maxwell Rupelt, 1927 to 2011. But uh, what, was it a heart attack? Do we know how he died? Yes, was he he's died of a heart attack. That was common back then. I'm not sure why. Uh he was born in Iowa, Edward J. Rupert. They didn't have they didn't have all these. Uh, first of all, he was young, so he wouldn't have been screened for things like um, 
hardening of the arteries or uh, high blood pressure unless he, you know, unless he, you know, uh, you know, they thought the heart attacks were, so he wasn't told to take it easy. Huh. And so he, uh, uh, he worked for the aircraft industry out there in, uh, in California after he left the Air Force, so. Well, when were you born where? I know we said it on one of the shows prior to Tuesday, but let's put it on this book. You were born, uh, your location, and, well, you're not dead yet. 1944 at Cleveland, Ohio. All right. So we've at least got that established, and... uh, you're, uh, talking so I've about been your... I've been I've been interested in working on UFOs for over fifty years, much longer than fifty years. And you spent twenty five years in the Army and in the I started to say Air Force Post Office, United States Post Office. So you've got fifty years of retirement check or pension from the government. Yeah, I've been stealing right? for the government for fifty years. Well, that's yeah. And now I'm retired, so I continue to steal from them. Well, that's okay. You're making a living, but you're doing this. Uh, I'm not paying him, folks, to do this. This is out of the goodness of his heart because he is dedicated to UFO business and helping us with the UFO Association for oral reports. And hopefully he's going to bring some of his friends. But right now we're establishing UFO Association reporters with Jan Aldrich and myself, Teresa J. Thurman Morris. Book one, and we're starting because Jan has been uh, doing this longer than me. He's older than me. He was born in 1944. I was born December 26, 1951, and we've decided to join forces in archiving and sharing oral reports. So we hope that you will find who, what, when, where, why, how, and sometimes what do we say in the business, in journalism, or is, uh, reports, how much meaning the cost, or how many, right? Not just how, but how much or how many, depending if you're reporting militaristically. And he was trained in the United States Army. I was. Uh, did you have any other training with the Air Force? Like, I have joint. I was recruited in in a special project. And then the CFR, right? So, no, I got, uh, I, you know, most of my training was Army. I was trained Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines by choice, coming back in as a 4 by 10 rehire. And yeah, I, was, I, I was trained in, in uh, supply. Then I, then I did meteorology for about 16 years. Then I did uh, security and intelligence and also uh, nuclear weapons. And... Uh, I did uh, personnel. Yeah, personnel. that was all. A lot of this is self-taught. The personnel part of it. Me the, too. Uh, and I did. Uh, I did uh, uh, safety management. Uh, at, I'm not talking about the, you know, your safety NCO in the barracks. I'm talking about on the staff of a two-star general. So uh, a lot of this is, you know, you 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 
you you go to the publications and you just read everything you can. And of course, when you're on the staff, you're on a staff, and I was on the staff uh, with, from uh, battalion up to uh, um, uh, staff of a two-star general, the uh, Southern European You were at Pacific. You worked at the European Theater. In I was Germany. in the I was in the uh, CTAF, uh, which is the uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It, 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 it's had a name change. It's the Southern European uh, Task Force, and uh, it's uh, in Italy, but it was also in uh, uh, Greece and Turkey, also. So uh, I've, I've served on staffs of lieutenant colonels, colonels, and uh, generals. Okay. I worked with uh, mainly Air Force and uh, Navy, but I was taken from Navy the second time around uh, to uh, Lowry Air Force. But I was told I was going to do air traffic controller, come in and help during that. So I, I don't know if that's why I was actively recruited, but I was actively recruited after I came in from Africa and Europe into uh, rehire status as a 4 by 10 and there was a big controversy between uh, the testing with the U.S. Treasury, the United States Air Force, Intelligence Community, and Navy, and I was asked which one. I said, well, I want to go Navy, but the men in white came and got me and escorted me to the goat locker in uh, Houston Meps. It was very, they kept me in men in black, took me to Newton B. Schwartz attorney's office and a black car. It was real official-like. <laughs> so I don't know what all I was signed up for, but you had the United States. I know I was Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines trained, and I did personnel and information security once I got in. But the first job was supposed to be air traffic controller, then Lowry Air Force Base, and I trained at night in black. German came over from Germany, and they said I'd have a very higher clearance, higher than the president of the United States. And uh, they gave me, of course, instantly Q clearance. But uh, I know that I went into personnel and information security after that in the Navy, but I had to go via uh, Larry Air Force Base. They sent me to the basement of the hospital with me and four other people and said we would never get out of the government, that they would give us a, a six-month uh, DD-214, but this was only hard copy. If we lost it, that's all we got. Uh, uh, that would be all we've got. So I don't know what I was really in. I was happy to work, uh, especially with the military and them training me. So I was really enjoying it. So I went from training in the JAG, the Judge Advocate General Office over there, working for the captain there, to uh, Hawaii. And I was assigned, uh, first I went to the Navy Investigative Services Office, and uh, all they had were uh, women working there, and they said I did a really good job because they asked me all kind of questions and uh, espionage charges, all kind of things, and Central Intelligence Agency questions and DIS questions. So uh, they put me over in personnel and information security, and my uh, officers were under investigation. Her name was Elika Ana Ana, and they told me to not forget the name uh, Jim Turner. 
I think that was the project, Jim Turner, G-E-M-T-U-R-N-E-R. And the man that came and recruited me into uh, 94 back in the Army at Fort Hood, that he used the name Jim Turner, the name I was told never to forget. So I don't know if that's a project or not. But looking at S-E-T-A-F, now known as U-S-A-R-A-F, S-E-T-A-F has been established, stationed in Italy since 1955. Has a long history of operating the command and large signal support unit. So apparently, it says United States Army Africa. Is that what you're in in Italy? You said CTEF, right? Southern. Yeah, Africa. I was in CTEF. My goodness. All right. Well, it's the United States Air Force component of the United States Africa Command. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. No, it's not. not. It, well, that's that's recently. That's not when I was in it. It was not. Okay, so you just went direct now. Maybe it's part. It says uh, USA RAF headquarters are located on Caserma Eterl. How do you say that? Caserma and Caserma del Den, Vicenza, Italy. Shoulder sleeve. Looks like a. Did you wear this? It has a. No, 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 no. After so this, I was uh, <laughs> I was in a field artillery group there. All right, so we don't get all the data when you give SETAF. You won't get all the uh, data. Um, I was You're in a pre- nuclear group there, so you don't. They don't talk much about that. Okay, DoD security I means DoD. Our our, uh, our mission was more or less. Classified. Ah, okay. So the people so, only get to um, see what they want you to see in the in the computer. Is that correct? So we don't we can't just because we're historians think unless we get it firsthand. So you're telling us there's a lot of data that we can't find in the internet or on Wikipedia. Well, they won't. They won't. They won't. They won't talk about that. We had. So, uh, at, uh, we had. Uh, like I said, we had detachments all uh, over various places in Italy and uh, Greece, and we had we had we didn't have at the time, but they had before that a, a detachment in Turkey. So, how did you get in the army? Was you, were you actively recruited? Uh, were you? No, no, no. I, it was either. Uh, get drafted or come in. So. Oh, that's right. Because we had the Vietnam War. Vietnam War, yeah. Our really police action. I don't know how you feel, but we could get that down. So, from high school, did you have any education, in college, or were you? Yeah, I went to I went to Northeastern University uh, in Boston, and then I was studying physics, and I was, uh, and it was a work study program, so you. Uh, you worked half a year, and you went to school half a year. Ooh, physics. Your father was a chemist, and you lo- – I love physics. I didn't get to take it, but I love physics. I just had so, a uh, – So I was working I, – I was. Uh, my job was my uh, – when I wasn't studying, uh, my job was working at the Laboratory for Nuclear Science at okay. MIT. Whoa! So well, that's a I huge job. At the, I was working at the synchrotron lab. Wow! And they, so they, from high uh, school to college, there were there were there were two groups working there. They had a uh, 
a group of young women that had no mathematical or science training. That'd be me. <laughs> and okay. they had a group of us from from Northeastern, which did have which uh, did have science training, and uh, uh, in fact, exact uh, we used. Uh, Dr. Frisch was the head of the synchrotron lab there, and I we worked for him. And <clears throat> one of the books that we used at Northeastern was uh, Dr. Frisch's uh, uh, book on subatomic particles, and that's what we were doing. We were doing a project on subatomic particles. So, um, and were you working with a particle accelerator? We were doing the results. A cyclotron? Seriously? Synclotron. Oh, synclotron, okay. But no, we were doing that? we were doing something else. It was completely different. We were doing uh we were right, doing a spark chamber synclotron. Uh, results of bombarding uh, hydrogen uh with uh, protons at a at a uh, uh, high energy level. How do you spell it? I can't get it to come up. What? Uh, synchrotron. What's your saying? Well, the synchrotron didn't work. It. For, uh, uh, Dr. Frisch was in charge of the synchrotron laboratory, but the synchrotron had never worked properly. So. Well, how do you spell it? C i n c l o t r o n. Yeah, so it, but it doesn't matter because it it didn't work. Yeah. So the much. lab was there, the lab was there, but we did other things. Yeah, we did. Well, uh, the uh, experiment that I worked on was done at Brookhaven. It was Uh-oh. not done at MIT or or uh, at the uh, I've been Cambridge Electron Accelerator. It was done at Brookhaven. All right. And, well, let's talk and, about uh, what is so, that. So, here? so they had, uh, they had, uh, we had a, a quarter of a million photographs of um, nuclear interactions as uh, seen by a, in a spark chamber. It's very complicated. Uh, um, engineering that uh, we were able to track particles in uh, three three space that's uh, left, right, up, down. We were able to track particles uh, actually in in three-dimensional space uh, through a mirror system and uh, so what, what we did is just simple analysis what do what do we see happening here we see the beam go in we see it hit the hydrogen and then we see what what gets knocked out electrons protons k k tri, uh, k particles um, uh, and some more exotic things and uh was this pre-Brookhaven National Laboratory? It sounds an awful lot like it. 
The U.S. Department of Energy, Office of Science. Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't work there. I worked. I worked at a an ex- experiment that had been done at Brook, Brookhaven. I didn't go to Brookhaven. I went to MIT to work. The experiment had already been done. We were working on the results of the experiment. Very interesting. I like that. You're very uh, diversified for one human. Yeah, well, you it's... Uh, <laughs> you're, you're on on a social level, it was very interesting. Uh, uh, we were students, and the women that worked there, a couple of them were married, but uh, uh, most of them were not, but we were way too young for them. We were too young for them. They, 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 didn't, they didn't even notice us. <laughs> so the woman thing just wasn't happening. How old were you? Huh? How old well, were you? Well, you figure as, as a student, I, I think I was, uh, when I went to work there, I think I was uh, 20, 21, something like that. And what? these women oh, were, in their, were in their mid-20s. And, um, so this was before Several of them were, 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 had lived, had either were from South America or had lived in South America. Wow. Uh, and my boss was a, was a Hungarian refugee who was a, uh, a very, a beauty. She was a beauty, but she, uh, she had a master's degree in music, psychology, mathematics, and, uh, she could make a computer do anything she wanted to. Wow, there was somebody nice to know. Yeah. Did you get and, uh, so uh everybody was uh, all the all this uh all the higher ups were after her but uh, <laughs> typical male uh it's the nature of the beast. Yeah, but she say. uh she was holding out for somebody else, so she. Uh huh. But I mean, you know, she was. Uh, it was the it was the micro mini skirt time. Oh okay, go go boots. Yeah, White things boots. like that, and and yeah. and. Pharaoh. Uh, her and the other her and the other women uh, wore those really well. That was a real. Uh, well, that was a real distraction. We worked. We worked the nighttime shift, so we seldom. You get out of high school, and what uh, time frame are we talking about? Sixty-three. So I was there. Uh, Sixty-five to sixty-seven. Okay, so I was in high school, and May tenth, nineteen sixty-seven, is my first. We're turning in my first government papers for clearance and working for the government, May 10th, that I remember, and it's on file. It's only because I remember being the, the newspaper in the high school graduation for James Madison. I was co- I was I was in this Ginger T. Thurmond, T-H-U-R-M-O-N-D. Ginger, I couldn't even go by my name, Teresa Jeanette, because uh, Ginger, there was too many... Uh, Jan's like you and I are Jan. I've been called Jan all my life, right. up till that time. But Jan, and when I moved from Louisiana, my parents divorced and moved to Houston. 
there was too many jams in the room at the end of the school year for 1964. So they said I had to come up with a new name. So my hair was sort of a chestnut Irish, my Irish roots on the brown. My dad had black hair, mother had light brown, but it turned out sort of red, my grandmother. So they called me Ginger, like a a ginger. You know, I didn't even know that was a name for redheads. So Ginger, so 67. So you, from 65 to 67, were going from high school to college, or you were already working? I was working there. I was working at MIT from 65 to 67 and going to school. How old were you in 65 to 67? Hmm. I was 13 to 15. I was born in 51, December 26, 1951. So, uh, and remember, we had the Vietnam police action. We called it Vietnam War. We had the hippies and the nerds and the cowboys and the surfers in my school in Houston. Uh, So, you must have, what year did you graduate high school? 1963. Okay. I remember the year of 1964, my grandmother insisted I get a copy from West Monroe High School. I was in the ninth going to the tenth and moved to Houston. So I finished the last part of the ninth grade. So you graduated in 63. So I was 19 when I graduated. So you hadn't got married or met girls. So you, no. that's why you're talking about the women, because really this is your first job. Women are starting to be in your workplace. So you, oh, you this is a, not like any. This is not like any other workplace anybody had ever been to. This is this is completely different. This is, is not like any workplace that anybody has worked at. Well, was this because of nuclear? Was it because of World War II, or was it because no, of... No, no, it just was, it was, uh, it was uh, uh, helping reduce data for computers. In the yeah. 60s, whoa. Now, these are the yeah. big, huge, back in the day, and I remember from NASA and uh, working at Southern Living Magazine later on in Birmingham, but we had big rooms uh, of like IBM, uh, what did you have? IBM had an experimental computer that was bigger than anything at the time at, at MIT. They had okay. a giant one, and it was in its own building. Now, this is before you And it's, it's, it slaved other computers to the big one. Wow. Well, it's part of ufology. we got to, you know, it's going to take in computers and AI, but... Yeah, growing through computers, and IBM was the only name. See, and then in 65, that's when Valley's uh, Anatomy of the Phenomena came out, and that was about using a computer to study UFOs. All right. Well, uh, we've gone, we'll stay with the 50s and 60s next time. We've only got a few minutes left here, but uh, less than 20 minutes but uh, so is there anything between the 50s and 60s in your high school come to this job, this job and the kind of job you had? I mean, how did you get that job? Because were you a straight A student in high school? How did you? No, qualify? no, I did. We I, I worked on a survey crew for uh, for a while. That was my first job. For, and Northeastern got me that job. 
will explain it. Northeastern. It, you like I said, you go to school half a year, and you go, you work in the, you work in your something related to your field for half a year. So surveying is uh, you're working with mathematics and um, uh, finding points on the ground and things like that. So it's it, it, it's somewhat related to physics. What? But uh, then I then uh, um, I'll tell you what my roommates. It, I know everybody watches uh, Big Bang Theory. Yeah, well. That was us. That was I us. Did. That was us. That was us. Really? You're a nerd? I had, I, uh, I had four roommates. We were li- living on Beacon uh, Beacon Street up there, in, or Beacon Avenue up there in Boston. Um, we had this big apartment that uh, we got. Uh, uh, we would have been cool if. You know, if uh, 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 if if we were a little more cooler, but we were like the guys in the Big Bang Theory. We were we were nerds. How so, many were uh, like uh, on Big Bang? There's at least four men. Yeah, there's four of us. That's what I'm saying. It's it's like four of us, and and uh, uh, we had uh, three physics guys and one. One mathematician, um, and uh, uh, this this job came open at the MIT, and uh, uh, all but one of us went there. And we worked over there, and uh, they, they wanted people that had a little knowledge of physics, and. Uh, we had uh, we uh, we we applied for it, and and like I said, we we were using Doctor Frisch's book. In fact, we went in there one day, and everybody had a copy of Doctor Frisch's book. And uh, uh, <clears throat> he's the big boss. He we seldom saw him, but he came in that one day, and he says he says, uh, "What is this? You guys all have my book?" and <laughs> I said, yeah, we use it for contemporary physics. We have a, a course called Contemporary Physics. We use your book. He said, my goodness. He said, how many are in class? I said, about 35. And he said, oh, let me see. Three and a half cents times 35. He said, I'm rich. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, uh, and what was his first name? No. I'm not sure. I'd have to. I'd have to look it up. Was it, or is that causal reasoning? Matthias Frisch, causal reasoning and physics. No, I don't think so. Matthias, F R I S C H. No, no, I'm pretty sure it's not not anything like Matthias. Okay, it's uh. Let's see. My oh. boss, my 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 boss, it was Ava Bonus. That was her name. <laughs> she was a Hungarian uh, refugee and extremely smart. And 
Like I said, she could get computers to do anything. Here's Henry Frisch, Department of Physics. Let's see, Fermi, Enrico Fermi Institute. We'll have to establish this Frisch, Atomic Heritage. Dr. Henry Frisch, Professor of Physics, University of Chicago. His father, David Frisch, worked at Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project. I think Dr. Frisch was, may have been young for working on that. Says David H. Frisch was uh, March 18 to May 23, 1991, American physicist who helped develop the atomic bomb in World War II. Later became. So that's David Frisch. Well, the name is very popular. Henry Frisch has got a couple of videos. So we haven't established your the book. Well, it's it's really it's really not that important. I, uh, somewhere I've got his book here. I'll find it. History and philosophy of physics, Henry J. Frisch. Yeah, research in elementary particle physics, Henry Frisch. Well, let us know. I think that's that, probably him. Okay, research. Like in I said, his uh, his 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 book was a paperback. It was cheap. It was one of the only books I had that didn't cost forty. Well, it says he researched in elementary particle physics, Frisch Henry Merritt Frank University of Chicago. Oh, no. Well, it's got to be MIT and head of the synchrotron lab, so that's not him. Well, they might. All right. Well, we'll put Frisch uh, MIT synchrotron, which we can't get come up, synchrotron labs. MIT, nothing. It won't bring anything up. Fresh MIT. Okay. Well, we have to look at American men of science. American men of science. All right. Well, at least uh, we'll be knowing that we're going to be researchers. And uh, uh, I mean, he's just. I think we saw him maybe three or four times while we were there. all our dealings were with Ava. All right, so you like Ava, but the fact is that these people were in your lifetime, and they're important to your. Uh, uh, let me just. Hi, I'm just about finished with this radio show. I'll be finished in five minutes. I'm on the air. Okay, thank you. Okay, I just had to let my daughter know. Okay, research archive audio reviews and uh, causal reviews. We don't know, but we will find out, folks, because Jan Aldrich has become very important to me, and he has a lot of history to share in our UFO Association, and he's going to be one of our main reporters and has helped me start an oral history for our UFO Association, Jan Aldrich. Jan, do you have a middle name? Can you give us more data on you? Jan something, was that where you were Lucian. Okay, Jan L. Jan Lucian. It's J-A-N. That's very curious because I thought Jan was a female name, but after you get older, you realize over in Europe there's a lot of Jans or Jans in men. So uh, I haven't done it really just Jan, but is it just J-A-N or is it short? Well, you know, it's it, it's uh, it would be Jan, but nobody in nobody in uh, Americans wouldn't they don't they don't get that so. 
Well, I'm going to put in Jan Ludrich, Lucian Aldrich, Lucian Littlefield, Wikipedia History of Canterbury, New Hampshire. When I put your name in, I get some strange things, so I don't get a Jan Lucian. You'll get my name because I've been using my complete name. Well, let me put, try Jan Aldrich. So, uh, but I've been working in Jan Aldrich profiles from Google Context. It pulls you up on the right side. It says Jan Aldrich. Other project 1947 at Earthlink on the right-hand side of my computer. And on the left side, it's got your Facebook profile, then Jan Aldrich, N-O-U-F-O-R-S homepage, born April 14th. So then welcome to Project 1947. Now you have a Jan Aldrich IMDB, Jan Aldrich Director Project in New York Times, LinkedIn, Euro UFO. To discuss about you, Jan Aldrich. Now, is this archive uh, encyclopedia? Oh, you're in the American Loons. Congratulations. So am I. TJ Moore, CT Radio UFO Association. Well, good. I made the first page, folks. How about that? Under Jan Aldrich, ufologist. Hallelujah. So there is a God. TJ Moore, CT Radio Colon, UFO Association. Dash Jan Aldrich, ufologist. I put him on the Google map on the first page. Well, Jan, at least this is good. We're starting off on a good foot. Well, under your name, I'm actually on the first page with you. So how about that? Okay. We are definitely in the Internet world. They recognized us. So it shows uh, my company, TGMRC2 Radio, UFO Association, Jan Aldrich, ufologist, HGT Podcast, Apple. And let me click on that. Uh, because they've got historian, archaeologist. It goes right up under science. A Apple Podcast Preview under our ACO, uh, ACO folks, American Communication Online, Allied Command Organization, Ascension Center Organization, ACE Folk Life. And we had Folk Life in the beginning to establish under anthropology through the university and educational associations, if anyone's asking. And because we were archivists, folklorists, and I worked with Smithsonian and Broadcast Music Incorporated in the, uh, for 20 years in Kentucky and uh, doing reports and journalistic work and uh, prior, of course, government and driving coast to coast. So I've enjoyed my field research, so to speak, and oral reports. So uh, it says other popular podcasts besides my own is Hidden Brain, Shortwave with NPR. Ah, there's Neil deGrasse Tyson, Star Talk or Neil deGrasse Tyson, Star Talk. So my company, copyright Teresa J. Morris, CEO of Blog Talk Radio. How about that? All right, so Apple Podcast. Now, Blog Talk Radio is now Box huge corporation that's taken over, and we are doing live podcasts. So if you'd like to join us, we are the ACO, and Jan will be known as only one uh, aspect or one department because as everything in life, uh, he's taken on the UFO Association as uh, he has a Project 1947 website, and we're going to get into that some more next week. But uh, right now, we've only gotten to high school and into his jobs, which I had no idea if we weren't doing this oral uh, book report. This is amazing. So, how we got to be UFO Association reporters is basically based on personal interest. 
Uh, Jan, real quickly, we've got about five minutes here. Why are you a UFO researcher, enthusiast, historian, and what we now call ufologist? And you asked me if I was one, and I guess that I'm written in books as one. I wrote Knowing Cosmology, and I wrote uh, uh, books, stuff I had uh, as a journalist and author and writer at UFO Digest in Canada and books like that. They're just, you know, interesting reading of articles I used to write. But how did you become a ufologist? And we're discussing that, but I mean, when, let's just say, when did you start having the name ufologist or the tag? I I don't think I heard that very much until the 80s. Okay. What I was doing is the same thing that Ted Blocher was doing. I was looking through um, uh, newspapers and uh, uh, doing bibli- – actually, I was doing bibliography research. I did a uh, – Dr. James McDonald at, uh, at uh, University of Arizona – I was interested in ball lightning. He was interested in ball lightning. I decided I'd, I'd do a bibliography of what what I could find at MIT. It was quite extensive. So I did a bibliography on ball lightning and sent it to him. And in the meantime, I was looking for any scientific article articles in scientific and engineering magazines that worldwide. And, of course, MIT had a excellent uh, repository of that type of material, so I would send him ones, uh, references to ones, and he said, I, you know, he said, University of Arizona doesn't have those <laughs> publications that you said, so I, I, I'd find them in the, in the library, we could use the MIT library, which is very nice. Well, you've and got some I, excellent training. Yeah, so we uh, I went and, and and made copies for him of some of these articles, and some of them we couldn't find. I mean, there were a couple of Italian and Dutch articles that were who were hard to find. I found something in the in the engineer library, uh, a two volume book on lightning, <clears throat> written by a French scientist. Were you writing a research paper, so you wanted? No, to no, I was just doing this for him because he 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 was interested in ball lightning. He was a meteorologist, so he's interested. He's an atmospheric physicist, so, so he you're was interested. Do this bibliography research. I did I did that because I was interested in and he was interested in. <laughs> okay, y'all was just both just something with, that we that we did. So okay, like I I uh, I, uh, I found this book in the MIT Engineering Library, and it was over 100 years old. It had never been signed out because it had the little card in there when it signed out. It had never been, I was the first person to sign it out. And about half of the second volume was about ball lightning, thundering and globe. So that was, that was the... Uh, and it was in French. And he said, well, this is unique. I've never seen something like this before. <laughs> it's 100 years old. 
it's discussing ball lightning. So uh, he got a kick out of that one. Um, and, and Isabel Davis, I think, translated it for us. I don't have the translation anymore, but uh, I think he she translated it for McDonald because she knew French. So that was that so, was just one interesting thing. What about? But the I mean, there were talk? there were scientific articles in French magazines and uh, French scientific magazines and 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 Canadian and also other foreign magazines that uh, MIT had. You could get them by, light, yeah, by not, by oh, using a library. But that was ball of lightning, not UFOs. So we're going to establish that you are definitely a researcher and a very brilliant one, and uh, had some excellent training in laboratories, MIT, and a cyclotron. That I can't seem to find the word uh, or any history. Oh, so I had, um, <clears throat> but my main interest was history. So I. I studied history, and <clears throat> I noticed that the UFO history was—it was pretty—it was pretty, uh, was pretty thin. All right. Well, I mean, Rupel wrote about what happened before he got to uh, to Wright Patterson Air Force Base, but he—he's—he's—he's he's, he's almost dealing in rumors. But how did you? live a life without being poo-pooed or made fun of. I was all the time. Everybody made fun of me. Uh, made fun of me in my interest. So you didn't care or you just had enough clout between MIT? No, I didn't have enough clout. I just got I just you know, I just got used to it. Nobody, you know, in not being taken seriously and, you know, being a nerd and everything, so no, I wouldn't know about that, although I do now because my children like to think I'm cray-cray, but they've had sightings themselves. But they're starting thanks to UFO History Channel. Some of their spouses are starting to think we're not all crazy. We know we're not crazy. We know we're talking about what is uh, unidentified flying objects or unidentified, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena or uh, unidentified submersible objects. But we'll get into all that for UFO enthusiasts, researchers, name ufology and ufologists documented here and hopefully make it where those that come after us in the next 20 years won't have to fight such an uphill battle get rid of this giggle factor thing folks we're running out of time here and uh would you like to come back next tuesday or thursday we can do yeah let's try let's try tuesday all right folks this is based on uh, by invitation only with Teresa j morris uh, we do have a show coming up uh, Thursday with uh, Stephen Colburn on uh, his nanotechnology and artificial intelligence and possible implants and chipping people, which they're doing now and have been some companies for a few years. When I used to drive around coast to coast to chip, our, we also had SATCOM to track everything in our, our, for corporations in our trucks, most all of them, and they've gone to satellite. And I trained a lot of people, a minimum of usually 100 to 175 people on computers in their in their trucks. So I'm not as 
dumb as I once was, that I'm not as smart as I hope to be. <laughs> so I'm somewhere in between working with uh, Jan Aldrich for the UFO Association, and we'll do what we can to establish all the prior associations, organizations, websites, uh, data. Uh, we're archivists at heart, but uh, he was just getting into his research, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off with getting him down, 1944, and the history of ufology with Jan Aldrich. And uh, hopefully with the input, and we'll use uh, what little bit of bibliography we can, and he's talking about bibliography at the time. So, Jan, we're going to come back and talk about how to research papers and bibliographies and get established on how you started hearing the name ufologist in the 1980s. Is that okay with you? And then we can go back and fill in names and dates as you want to, as it comes up. Is that okay? Okay. All right. Well, you take care of that now. And uh, so Tuesday, uh, that's 4 o'clock, 4 to 6 Eastern. Is that correct, Jan? Right. Now, that's live, folks, if you want to hear it live. Otherwise, it'll be out there, like you just heard, on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, uh, iHeart, FM Radio, uh, Spotify. Oh, my gosh, I can't tell you all the places that I pay. Some of them I pay, and some of them I pay. But I put a lot of money into this because this is my hobby, and I want to help people get the stories out the best we can before us elders pass on. We are in the twilight of our lives, me and Jan. And he was born in 44, and I was born December 26, 51. So we'll be back next Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> and the creek don't rise. And you take care of that throat now, Jan, and we'll see you. And this will be there forevermore, as long as I pay the bill to archive it. <laughs> we hope somebody will pick up these archives later, but I've been doing it eight years. I haven't gone away, folks, so uh, we've got good archives right here. TJ Mars, ET Radio. Jan, thank you very much. You did an excellent job, and I look forward to uh, hearing you on YouTube. I'll go back and listen to them on YouTube, folks, but I've just started putting them on YouTube. So uh, UFO Association reporters, Jan Aldrich, Teresa J. Thurman Morris, signing out. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jan. See you next week, okay? Okay. Thank you. You did a good job. Excellent show. Till next Tuesday, folks.